is Off the Record, the weekly KOTO public affairs show that offers you, the listener, an opportunity to hear in-depth conversations on community topics and issues that matter. As always, you are encouraged to join the conversation by calling 728-4333. Now here's your host. Good evening, Kodo listeners. This is Matt Hoish from the Kodo News Team. Thank you all so much for spending your Tuesday nights tuning in to another installment of Off the Record. Tonight, we got a pretty special show. Frequent listeners to the Kodo Community Radio News will recognize the voices of the two guests we have joining tonight. Later in the hour, around 6.30 or so, we're going to have Scott Franz coming on. He is the State House reporter who gives us many an update on all the things going on in the Colorado legislature and a, a ton of other issues across the state. We're going to have a bit of an update with him, check in with him on some of the issues beyond our little Telluride community. Um, but joining us for the first bit of this hour, we have another frequent contributor to the Kodo Community Radio News who updates us on many water issues around the state and, and even beyond the state, really. Um, but I am delighted to be joined over the Zoom waves by the one and only Luke Runyon. Luke, thanks for joining. Hey, it's great to be here. So I have to ask, and one reason I was really excited to to do this hour with you and Scott is both to kind of get some updates on issues and also really just to, to get to know you two a little bit more. I think our listeners are, are so familiar with your voices, um, but maybe not as much with, with who you are as people. And, and one of the joys of community radio, I think, is also knowing a bit the person, you know, behind the voice. And so I'm wondering, just to start off, could you actually just give our listeners just a bit of background of, of you know your life before radio and really just what led you to this quirky thing called, called public radio. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I'm happy to be here. And, uh, I think the way that I got into it was how a lot of people get into public radio is, you know, both of my parents were avid NPR public radio listeners growing up. And so I kind of had it instilled in me at a very young age. And when I went off to college in Illinois, I, wanted to study journalism. And um, I always really appreciated the way that public radio was able to connect people together. And you hearing people's voices, I feel like is a really intimate way to get to know someone and their story. And so that was always really appealing to me. Um, so I went to college for journalism in Illinois. And uh, when I graduated, I got a job at the NPR station in Aspen and was a reporter there for about two years before I left and went to the Front Range and was a reporter for KUNC with a project called Harvest Public Media for about five years where I covered agriculture and food issues. Um, and then in 2017, we got a grant to cover water issues. And so I started the project that I'm currently working for um, back in 2017 and been covering water ever since. It's a heck of a beat to have. I got to say also, though, I mean, water and food, I do sense a bit of a, a pattern there. And it sounds like you've really spent the last decade of your life in that world. I mean, what what kind of was the initial thing that attracted you to to be covering, you know, those kind of issues, issues like food and issues like water? Well, I feel like natural resource issues are are something that kind of link together communities in the West you know, stories about water or oil and gas or public lands or ranching. Um, there was just kind of like a nice through line there in all of this, the stories that I was doing and the reporting that I was doing. Um, I also have like a personal connection to agriculture. Both, both of my parents grew up on farms in the Midwest. And so I had, you know, some connection to agriculture growing up and you know, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up going to farms. And so it was really nice when I took that job covering ag to kind of come back to those roots and learn a bit more as an adult, what I had experienced as a child going to, you know, those, those family farms. Um, and there's just like really interesting stories that come out of uh, agriculture. I think sometimes it can be really easy to, for people to kind of dismiss covering the ag beat as, you know, um, 
uninteresting or like it's too rural and doesn't apply to people, but like we all eat. And so we all have a connection to food. And I feel the same way about the water beat. It's like the most relevant beat I think you can possibly have because food and water, it's like, those are the basis, basis necessities that we need in order to survive. So, you know, I hope people are paying attention to what's going on with them. Yeah. Well, and you kind of read my mind talking about the food, but I mean, I actually didn't know the Harvest Media connection or the growing up on a farm connection or, or you know, with, with on a, in, in kind of that rural environment. Um, and I do have to ask, you know, before we jump away from that, I mean, how did that kind of more rural connection at least, I mean, how does that inform your reporting both on on food and water? What is what is kind of the perspective that gives you when you're figuring out what questions to ask and, and who to talk to and what stories to tell? Hmm. Well, I think just like with any issue, there can be this kind of urban rural divide that sort of pervades a lot of American society right now. And I think water is one of those issues that can very easily kind of map onto Mm -hmm. that existing divide where you've got, you know, cities that use a tremendous amount of water and then agriculture that uses even, you know, exponentially more water. And this, that becomes kind of this tension point in discussions about water in the West is like cities versus agriculture is this kind of very um, neat narrative that I think we, um, we can fall into. And I think having a background, you know, going to my grandparents' farms and spending time in rural communities, I don't, it can be easy, I think, for city dwellers sometimes to dismiss the issues or perspectives in rural communities. And I, I try my best not to do that because I think that, um, you know, there's perspectives in cities among city residents and among, you know, agricultural water users as well that I would want to hear. Um, and I wouldn't want to dismiss anyone's perspective. So I think having that personal background helps in that. Hmm. Well, in kind of thinking about, you know, the the story of this water beat you've really been on over the last five years and, and the way that a lot of our listeners know you, I'm curious, can you take us back to, to 2017? You've just spent several years with Harvest Media thinking about food, and you say this grant comes in to, to begin covering water. And I guess I'm wondering kind of what um, what were your initial reactions when you kind of were thrust into this beat of really just water in the West, which is maybe one of the most blank canvases you can imagine, or at least the the largest. Um, I guess, what were your initial thoughts and reactions really in those early months on the beat when I imagine you were still kind of getting to know what exactly all this is? Well, when I was covering the agriculture beat, it's really hard to tell any story about farming or ranching in the state of Colorado without talking about water. Mm. And so there were lots of um instances in covering that beat where i would come across a water story and would maybe have to set it aside because that project that i was working for was mostly midwestern so like my editor lived in kansas city our the audio i was the furthest person west in that project and uh so a lot of times the water stories just wouldn't make sense to an audience in the midwest where like water is plentiful the crops are not irrigated, they're, you know, dry land crops. So it's like it's a completely different water situation when you get further east. Um, and so when we got this opportunity to cover the Colorado River Basin, for me, it was it was really exciting because it was a whole new geography of learning about the southwest and the Colorado River watershed. Um, it was a whole new set of issues. I mean, uh, the the driving issue in the basin is water scarcity instead in water quantity rather than water quality, which is a lot of what I had ended up covering on the agriculture beat. So mm-hmm. it was just, you know, as a, as a beat reporter, it's fascinating to whenever you get the chance to like change your focus and like really dive into a brand new issue. And I was a little worried at the beginning that I wouldn't, you know, that it was too narrow, that I wouldn't have enough to report on. But, you know, it's been about <laughs> it's been about five years and uh, there's still plenty of stories in the Colorado River Basin that I'm interested in, in learning more about and I'm surprised by all the time. Well, can you describe, I mean, you kind of started to talk about geography and really, can you just give us, I mean, what are the, I guess, parameters of this beat? What are, what are the the states and just the regions that really fall under your purview in what you cover? So you have seven U.S. states that make up the Colorado River Basin or that the kind of hydrologic basin falls in. So you've got 
Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming in the upper basin of the river. And then in the lower basin, it's Nevada, Arizona, and California. The river crosses over the U.S.-Mexico border, and you have two Mexican states, Baja, California, and Sonora, that use water from the river as well in cities and agriculture. Um, and then you have 30 federally recognized tribes in the basin as well that have varying reliance on the Colorado River. Um, so, it, you know, and the river flows through tons of national parks and provides water to these vast agricultural areas in the Southwest. So it's a heavily relied upon river in, in our region. Mm. That's so interesting discussing, especially, I mean, the the various governments, jurisdictions, I mean, really almost practically really an international story that this river kind of becomes. I mean, how does that shape how you're really thinking about this? Because I think frequent frequent listeners will also know that one of your biggest focuses right now has just been I mean, just the decreasing amount of water in the river and how there's really this whole interstate collaboration that has to happen. And it seems like a bit of a nightmare of bureaucracy to trace that. Um, but how does just the the way that this river, I mean, nature doesn't really care about borders that much. How does that shape how you're thinking about the beat and maybe the challenges of the beat and the opportunities? Yeah, I think water is one of those issues that can be really, e it can be very easy for people to have these kind of narrow parochial interests when it comes to water. You feel very protective of the river that flows through your community, but maybe you're not considering what's happening upstream or downstream of your community. And I think one of my goals <clears throat> as a reporter is to try and make those connections more clear between, you know, what's, what's happening in Mexico with the Colorado River can ripple upstream and affect things that happen in the United States. You can zoom in even further. And, you know, I'm talking to you from where I live in Grand Junction and, you know, issues that pop up in Moab uh, ripple upstream to Grand Junction and what happens in the headwaters of the Colorado River in Rocky Mountain National Park, follow it downstream to where I am. So my goal is to always kind of draw those lines very distinctly and my job really is to kind of cover the watershed as a whole not just water in Colorado or water in Utah or you know in these very distinct places but cover it cover a watershed as a beach that's really the goal and i well i guess does thinking about your beat as a watershed. I mean, I guess, does that make you think about things differently? Because I feel like so many beats are our cities or our states or are maybe ideas. But I mean, a watershed is this geographical thing that I think most people don't think about the world in terms of watersheds. And so I'm just curious, I mean, do you find yourself thinking in ways that maybe other people you're talking to aren't thinking? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that we should be thinking of our world <laughs> as watersheds. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, you go back into history and like there have been people who've argued for you know the fact that the united states probably should have been organized by watershed in terms mm -hmm. of like the state boundaries should have followed watershed boundaries um and you know i think like it forces you to kind of consider the river as this kind of shared resource this shared value that the region has um and like I said, it's you know what I'm really trying to do do is kind of draw those connections and and let people know that uh, you're, you know that this whole region is kind of in this together. Like the decisions that are getting made on the Colorado River right now um, might feel far away. Like I think sometimes it can be really easy for people in Colorado to be like, oh, this is like Las Vegas's and Los Angeles's problem. This isn't really our problem. It's like, well, this is this. All of these decisions are going to affect this entire region like we're there's no getting out of this like we all depend on the same thing um and that's the colorado river and so we don't it's not going to be so easy to just dismiss it and say it's somebody else's problem i think we all kind of have to own it hmm. listeners if you're just tuning in this is off the record i'm matt hoist from the Kodo news team my guest for this first part of our show is luke runyon he's a managing editor and reporter covering the colorado river basin with kunc and also a a person whose pieces we frequently run on the Kodo Community Radio News. We're talking with him 
all about water and the Colorado River Basin. If you have a question for him, give us a call, 970-728-4333. Again, 970-728-4333. I should also mention, um, Luke, you've also had a, a several appearances recently on Morning Edition. You've gotten a bit of of national attention, um, and congrats on that, but it's not exactly for the happiest thing. Um, it's for these this kind of federal stipulations recently that the federal government had set this deadline for states to come up with a plan to conserve water on the Colorado River, um, and they basically didn't, and they've kind of skirted past the deadline. And can you kind of just give us a bit of an outline, really, of of this whole crazy situation that you've been covering over the last few months on the river? Sure. So the kind of the news this summer started in June. And this is the the Bureau of Reclamation Commissioner. So Bureau of Reclamation is the federal agency that manages and operates most of the dams, the large dams in, in the Western US. The commissioner for the Bureau of Reclamation set this deadline and this goal. So that the commissioner asked for two to four million acre feet of conservation across the entire watershed just to stabilize the Colorado River's largest reservoirs, which are Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And she set this 60-day deadline, which passed earlier in August. And the federal government had threatened to take action if the states did not meet that deadline. But instead, what happened is the deadline passed. The states were not able to come up with an agreement on how to cut that volume of water, which is a tremendous amount of water. (laughs) Like, just for perspective, the entire state of Colorado's annual water use from the Colorado River is about two and a half, 2.2 million acre feet. So this is a a huge amount of water. This is like, you know, unheard of, unprecedented in terms of like the volume that needed to be cut and to do it in a very short period of time. Um, And so now we're kind of in a period where the states don't really have a plan on how to do it. The federal government doesn't really have a plan on how to do it. And uh, we're like one or two dry winters away from like a very serious situation along the Colorado River where those reservoirs could get to critically low levels very soon. Mm-hmm. There was um, there was one stat in, in, in an article you wrote for KUNC that struck me, and, and I think you quoted someone or you know, you wrote that Bureau of Reclamation models show it's possible for Lake Powell to lose its ability to generate hydropower as early as December 2023, that the water could get so low it's not able to generate power. Yeah, and Lake Powell is already pretty low. I haven't checked it today, but I think the it's about 25 to 26% of its capacity. And this is a huge body of water. I mean, if anybody has been to Lake Powell, it's enormous. Like it's a second largest reservoir in the country. And uh, to have it at 26% of its capacity, it's extremely low already. And it's kind of a recreation hotspot. So lots of people go down there and spend time on houseboats or motorboats. Um, and there's really only two boat ramps that are left operable at Lake Powell right now, just because it's so low, you know, it's in a Canyon. And so at a certain point, the water gets so low that the boat ramp just like falls off a cliff. Like you can't launch a boat into off of a cliff into a reservoir. Um, and the, the kind of the big concern right now really is on the hydropower front because it's not. You know, it's starting to show up in federal models that it could lose the ability to generate hydropower, you know, in a little more than a year and threaten to lose hydropower even sooner than that, maybe next spring. Um, Mm. So there's a lot riding on the snowpack that piles up in the Colorado River uh, headwaters and all of its tributary headwaters this year, because another dry winter is going to really test the ability to keep the hydropower plant at Lake Powell running. We have a caller calling in, so we're going to bring them up. And Luke, unfortunately, we have not hooked up our phones to the Zoom, but I'll relay the message to you in a sec. Oh, oh, we just lost them. Caller, if that was you, give us a call back. Hopefully we can get you on the airwaves. Oh, we might have them again. Hey there, you're live on KOTO. Got me. Hey, I'm just wondering what, has anybody studied what the impact would be on our water situation if we just stopped watering our lawn? We got rid of grass, you know, municipal grass, 
all of these things that we continue to water and it's almost like a you know non-native monoculture that we're supporting where that water could go definitely elsewhere hmm. good question thank you Luke, the uh, the question was: Has anyone studied the impact of what would happen if we, if we just stop watering lawns? If we didn't spend all the water we use on kind of you know the more um, aesthetic lawns that we have on all our houses? Well, it depends on the type of grass that you're talking about. So, if you're talking about like municipal use of water, so this is like a city's water portfolio, there. are are lots of cities that are starting to roll out programs to remove lawns, either paying people, so incentivizing, you know, two or three dollars a square foot of lawn removed, they'll pay you to do that. Um, there's programs like that in Los Angeles, Las Vegas. Um, some cities in Colorado are starting to roll out those programs as well. Um, but really, you know, 75 to 80 percent of the water use in the basin is as agriculture hmm. and and a considerable amount of that is also grass is uh you know pasture land and alfalfa or sudan grass and that's a tremendous water use in the basin and right now you're starting to hear a lot more discussion about how to how do you incentivize farmers not to grow water thirsty crops <laughs> uh, which is a really hard thing to do because you know there's a market for alfalfa grass sudan grass um in the colorado river basin and you know so this is kind of like a macro discussion that's happening at the watershed scale like how do you how do you reduce the amount of agriculture you agricultural water use without hurting rural economies that depend on those farms growing grass and and shipping it all over the country and so really it sounds like i mean you have this the the federal government you know asking these states to reduce their water use by two to four million acre feet and it sounds like what you're saying is i mean the vast majority of that reduction would really just have to come from agriculture throughout the basin yeah, and that's sort of a, a drumbeat that you're hearing from city leaders in the region is that you could basically eliminate the water use for most major cities in the West and still not be able to meet that goal of the two to four million acre feet. Like some of the savings has to come from agriculture. And I think there are some areas in the basin that kind of see the writing on the wall, particularly in Southern California and Southern Arizona, of that they're going to have to participate in some of these savings as well, even if they feel like their water rights are legally protected. Um, just politically, you can't get away with like everyone else has to cut except for the farmers in Southern Arizona and Southern California. Yeah. Listeners, if you're just tuning in, we're joined by Luke Runyon discussing water issues. Luke is a, a frequent contributor whose pieces we run on the Kodo News all the time, talking all things water. We have him till just about 6.30. So if you have a question for him, give us a call, 970-728-4333. Um, you know, this isn't really a hopeful conversation, and I guess it's not a very hopeful issue at this point. I, I mean, but and I, I kind of I hesitate, but I do want to jump in. I mean... Have you talked to people about what, you know, potential futures could look like four or five years down the line if things don't change? I mean, are we talking people not having drinking water or I guess what really is kind of the the uh-oh scenario that people are, are, are forecasting? I don't think we're quite we're not to the point where you're talking about like people's taps getting shut off in cities around the West like that. There's almost always going to be water for people in the Southwest. Now, is there going to be water for people and the, the type of agriculture that we've had uh, for the last century, 150 years? Maybe not like that. Some of the ways that we use water, our relationship to water is going to have to change. We're going to have to see it as more of a valuable resource and not just as like a utility that we pay a little bit each month in order to access. Like, I think, you know, as, as a region, as a, as a set of communities in the Southwest, like our relationship to water is going to have to change and we're going to have to be tested of, you know, our, are we going to allow 
the rivers in our communities to to dry up in order to meet human and agricultural needs? Or are we going to set some water aside to flow, to keep flowing in rivers? Um, they're going to be really hard discussions, but that's why, you know, why you have journalists out there who are covering these types of stories, because they're really, the consequences are far reaching um, when it comes to water. And um, I think like the decision-making around it can be pretty opaque like I feel like people don't feel clued in to what their local utility is talking about or kind of what's happening with water at the state or the federal level. And so really that's our job in order to bring those stories to the public so that they know what's happening and what's getting talked about. Hmm. Have you talked to anyone, I mean, who is proposing, I mean, there's not, it doesn't sound like there's a panacea, this all encompassing solution, but have you talked to people who just have ideas for ways to, to adapt to this really? I mean, scary sounding future and it sounds like you know it's not really as much an if but a when at this point with the way that climate change is shaping the the climate in the southwest and just how it seems like the drought state we're in isn't really set to end anytime soon have you have you talked to folks who say well here's one idea to reduce water a little bit and and here's another idea are there any er areas of hope maybe that you've you've seen yes i would say some of them are kind of technological so we're starting to see more investment in water recycling and water reuse. And a lot of this is in the ma major cities in the West that are looking at investing in, in water recycling facilities where you're basically turning sewage in back into drinking water. And we have the technology to do that. It just, you have to invest in creating the facilities to make that possible. Um, so you're starting to see a lot more talk about that. And on the municipal front, I feel like that's, you know that has some promise because a city can much more easily meet its water needs when it's recycling the water that it's using um i think on the agricultural front you're starting to see a lot more investment in in kind of on farm efficiency so helping farms use the water that they have more efficiently um, and then maybe taking some of that water that's conserved and either leaving that in a river or sending it to a reservoir um so you know, I, I I always try to caution people to not feel totally hopeless when, when they're thinking about these issues because, you know, it can be very easy when you look at these like two giant reservoirs that are declining to record lows, but we still have a lot of tools at our disposal. And I don't think that it's uh, a fait accompli of like what's actually gonna happen. Like we still have a lot of agency as a society in order to choose which path we wanna take. Mm. As you're thinking really about, you know, just your general reporting over the next few months, I mean, what are some of the, the big items or events or happenings that you're keeping an eye out for over the, the rest of 2022 in terms of water in the Southwest? Well, some of it is this agreement among the states for this two to four million acre feet. Um, that is still very much in flux. And uh, the discussions that I'm hearing from the leaders in the various states that are a party to that is that there's you know there's some discussion that's happening but the kind of the federal pressure has has let up a little bit over um, the last couple weeks now that this deadline has passed and nothing happened um so we're going to be paying attention to that <clears throat> we're also going to be paying re really close attention to what happens with snowpack this winter uh, because snow kind of drives everything in discussions of the Colorado River Basin. And if you have a really, if we have another, even just moderately dry winter, things could get really bad, particularly at Lake Powell. Um, so we're going to be paying very close attention to what, what piles up in the mountains just outside Telluride um, over the course of, of the upcoming winter. Mm. Our listeners, a lot of them, I think, will say, um, we've had a very wet summer here. We've had a lot of monsoons coming through. But is there a difference in the impact of heavy snowpack versus heavy monsoonal rains on just that annual water level? Oh, absolutely. I think, like, monsoons are great in terms of uh, filling up soil moisture and groundwater and suppressing wildfires. Uh, but they don't do a ton in terms of, like, the overall water supply that really is driven by snowpack and you can kind of think of snowpack as this just like massive reservoir of water in the wind in the winter that just piles up in the mountains and then gets let loose every spring when it starts to melt off um, and so that's really where like our water supplies in the west come from and that's what fills up reservoirs or 
um, or doesn't, depending on how high or low the snowpack is. Well, it's I don't know if it's reassuring or not, but it's definitely enlightening to know that that the the snow we get this next season might not only help people have a, a good ski season, but could also maybe you know by the west another year or so of of good water years. So I think we'll keep an eye out for that. Um, Luke Runyon is a managing editor and reporter covering the Colorado River Basin with KUNC. Kodo Community Radio News frequently runs his pieces at the end of our newscasts. And Luke, it's just been a delight to to get to talk to you for longer than the 45 seconds or so we usually get you on our news. But thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. Listeners, stay tuned. We're going to have Scott Franz on in just a moment. This is Off the Record. I'm Matt Hoish. Good evening, Kodo listeners. If you are just tuning in, this is Off the Record. I'm Matt Hoish from the Kodo News Team. Tonight, we are taking a bit of a more regional approach to our show, which usually focuses on on relatively local topics in the Telluride region. We just had Luke Runyon on, who is a frequent uh, contributor to our Kodo newscast. He's a reporter for KUNC, discussing many, many things about water in the Colorado River Basin. And joining us for the second half of our show is another frequent voice on the Kodo Community Radio News, the one and only Scott Franz, who is a State House reporter and now investigative reporter with with KUNC. Scott is is moving on, but we're gonna we'll get to that a bit a bit later. Um, but listeners will mostly know Scott from his immense coverage of the State House and all things going on at the Capitol in Denver. Scott, thanks for joining. Hey, my pleasure, Matt. Great to be here. I'd mentioned this to Luke that one of uh, one reason I really wanted to do this show not only was to talk to both of you about your beats, but also to you know get to know you a little bit more too. I think our listeners are very familiar with your voices, um, and it's always fun in public radio to get to know the person behind the voice a little bit. And so to start, I'm wondering if you can just share with our listeners a bit of your backstory. Who is Scott Franz, and how the heck did he end up in public radio? <laughs> sure, that's a that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I started as a newspaper reporter in, in Steamboat Springs, um, where I learned to love the outdoors. I um, go hiking almost every weekend. I try to spend at least 30 to 40 days of the year in a tent. Um, I am a, um, the last few years, I've developed a passion for long distance hiking. Um, have done the first 300 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail from the Mexico border um, up into uh, um, Southern California and then went on to do the John Muir Trail. Um, so the outdoors, definitely one of my my biggest passions along with uh, fly fishing. So when I'm not at the Capitol, um, even in the middle of the session, I'll, I'll sometimes sneak off <laughs> to go, uh, uh, you know, the Platte River here, in, you know, south of Denver or, um, you know, up, up in South Boulder Creek and the Flatirons. Um, I'm almost always outdoors. More recently, the last uh, 
uh, month, we just uh, reached a milestone. My fiance and I adopted a uh, beagle puppy. So Penny Aww. has been <laughs> taking a lot of my time. And, um, I do have a recording studio here at it's, it, my house in, in Denver. And it's been, um, as I'm sure you, you know, sometimes with, with finding a quiet place, it, uh, <laughs> especially with a um, nine month old beagle puppy who is just developing her howl. Um, it's, it's been a, a fun adventure, but, um, yeah, those, those are just a couple things. Um, you know, I, I got into public radio, actually, I, I left my newspaper job in steamboat to hike the Pacific crest trail. And somewhere along the way, I said, gosh, you know, I really don't want to leave journalism right now. And this opportunity came up, um, to cover the Capitol for, um, the Rocky mountain community radio network and participating stations and. Um, you know, it's a mission I'm passionate about as a public servant and a journalist and, um, you know, somewhere in those 300 miles hiking through the, the desert, I realized like, I want to keep, you know, having an impact and mm. telling stories. And, um, you know, so I knew nothing about, uh, the public radio broadcasting world when I started. And, um, luckily I had a voice coach that you know, was in my ear every time I was trying to file something. So it's racing on deadline, but at the same time getting told, like, you sound terrible, like you need to do it. You know, you need, to, you're not emphasizing the right words. And I sometimes still listen to my, I wish I had a tape of it to play, but my first, uh, um, you know, newscast filings from the Capitol. Those are I, fun to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I talked at about half the speed that I, I do now because I was, um, yeah, but I've I've so loved the the public radio world and getting to know all the different um, you know stations in our network, their listening areas, their listeners. Um, you know, I do travel around Colorado frequently, and um, yeah, it's been you know one of it's certainly one of the best jobs of of my life, um, getting to do this and learn a whole new medium, and you know have a beat that that does have an impact and that is something people. Um, are very plugged into and interested in. Mm. I think some listeners might be surprised that radio is not your your first medium. Dare I say you you do you have a very silky smooth radio voice? I have to I have to say so your 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 <laughs> your filings are always a pleasure to listen to vocally. So your oh, voice thanks. coach did well, and so did you. Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> Can you take us through, Scott? Though, um, kind of a general day at the state house for when you are reporting up there when they were in session, um, because you're filing a ton of things. I mean, really, I would say at least four days a week, if not more, there is something from Scott Franz that we are able to broadcast. Um, and so just, I mean, just in a typical day, I mean, what is it that you're doing up there that you, you, how do you decide what to report on? And then how do you just, you know, get it all done in a few hours and put something on the radio? Right. Yeah. The, the capital is, is a challenge because each day, there is so much happening. There could be, um, you know, 15 to 20 bills that have a debate. And, you know, obviously I'm um, one person, there's a, a press corps of reporters from different outlets. And, you know, we, we sometimes work together, you know, to decide, um, you know, if you realize certain outlets are really covering this one bill and feel like, oh, you know, that's, you know, everyone's there. Sometimes I'll, you know, take up an issue that, that may be, um, you know, getting a little less attention and, and, you know, I've always kept in the back of my mind every day when I walk in that building, you know, I'm, I'm not serving, you know, just the, um, front range listening area, Greeley where KUNC is located. I'm trying to bring, um, a statewide perspective and, uh, recognizing that a lot of our stations, um, including Kodo are, you know, on the West slope, they're, they're very far from, from Denver, um, and you know there are bills um that do affect you know all of us whether it's you know wildfire prevention is a is a great one it's been such a big topic the last um two sessions with the you know the record years we've had um so you know i i try and go in with that mindset it's i think if you asked any reporter covering the state capitol um they'd all say at times that they get overwhelmed <laughs> it's a crazy <laughs> environment you know i um you know it's it's a lot of caffeine and late nights and um another challenge is you don't, you don't really know how late you're going to be in the building um because the calendar there um you know with with city council you have an agenda and you know each day each week you know you 
have a general idea of, okay, these are the things they're voting on. But at the Capitol, you know, it, the schedule is sometimes influenced by um, politics and, you know, the timing of bills. You may expect, you know, the, the vote on whether to um, end the death penalty in Colorado to happen on a Tuesday. It may not happen until the next Monday, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's always kind of a challenge um, and each day you're having to kind of keep an open mind and, and react to, um, you know, the votes that are taken, the decisions being made. Um, but, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed, you know, getting to know the other members of the press corps. Like I said, they work for, um, competing organizations, but I think we all share the same values and, and mission, um, as public servants, as journalists to, um, you know, serve the people of Colorado through our storytelling, through our interviews with lawmakers through our ability to ask the people in power questions on behalf of the people, you know, who can't make it to the Capitol, who don't have the access that we do to sit um, on the House floor, on the Senate floor, where we can walk up to their lawmaker and say, hey, you know, why'd you vote this way? Or what do you think about, you know, this um, important wildfire bill or this affordable housing? You know, it's, um, you know, something that, yeah, I really cherish and, and value as a journalist being able to, to serve that role. Mm. Listeners, we are talking with Scott Franz, our state house reporter who frequently contributes to the KOTO Community Radio News and several other stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Network. We're talking to him about his experience covering things up at the state house in Denver. If you have a question for him, give us a call, 970 Scott, I feel like I just kind of have this like almost checklist of just like topics and I like they're all kind of generally here is this topic. What is your summary of kind of this past legislative session? What's really happened on it? Um, and so this might be a, a bit of a, a bit of a speed round, but just kind of getting your general reflections on kind of some of these big ticket items that that have relevance both in our community and and across the state. You had mentioned wildfires. And so I think I'll just start there. I mean, can you just kind of give some general reflections on some of the major developments that really happened in statewide efforts to combat and prevent wildfires this past year? Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And and there is a lot happening. Um, you know, they they have made some very significant investments in um, forest thinning projects, you know, funding these programs that homeowners and places can remove, you know, some of the um, dense vegetation around their home, you know, th- those types of preventative measures that the state's been doing for a while. Um, you know, some of the ones that get the most attention are this, you know, is this Firehawk um, helicopter that is still being built. It's essentially a military grade um, Black Hawk helicopter that gets um, converted into a firefighting um, helicopter. It, it's faster than the Hueys that, you know, the older style helicopters that um, you know, Colorado has been using to to attack them, but that's something you know that's not not been deployed yet. Um, you know, I'm I'm also kind of working on a story right now, looking at some of the the bigger measures that that died last year on the wildfire front. You know, including you know there was this proposal to install um, high definition cameras in very remote places around the state, places like California. Um, Arizona have been using them for years now to, to more quickly detect blazes taking the place of those, you know, older fire towers. Um, and yeah, that, you know, that died in the last week of the session, along with another effort to, um, expand the state's, uh, investigation team that looks into the causes of these, um, because the state really doesn't have a strong track record of determining the exact cause of many wildfires. Um, so I, I'd say it's a mix right now, you know, and um, come January, there's going to be some big debates over building codes. You know, there's a, a push right now, um, even during the summer here to write some legislation um, kind of requiring stricter building codes in places that are prone to wildfires. Um, so, I, you know, I'd say we're still in the thick of, um, you know, how do we respond to these kind of huge disasters we've seen from you know, the Marshall Fire here on the Front Range to the East Troublesome Fire um, and beyond. And, you know, you look at um, the Grizzly Creek Fire on, how, you know, how often it's closing I-70 because of flash flood threats. And, um, you know, the impacts are enormous and the stakes 
you know, are very high. So that's definitely an issue that that we'll be continuing to um, to cover in depth. It's interesting to hear about bills that die around wildfires because you'd imagine wildfire prevention preparedness would you know wouldn't necessarily be as much a, a political issue as something people could just agree. It's it's good to not have communities be destroyed by wildfires, but I'd imagine nothing is that simple in politics and that even if maybe people agree generally, I mean, there's all those budgetary considerations that, that would just weigh things down. Right, exactly. You know, the state has a limited amount of, of money. You know, you, you hear about, um, you know, the improving economy in Colorado, but lawmakers do have a limited amount of resources. And, you know, even an issue as critical as wildfire prevention um, is not immune from politics, is not immune from lawmakers having to, you know, sacrifice this bill for the sake of this other priority. You know, it could be, um, you know, anything from paid family leave to, um, you know, the public school funding. So, uh, yeah, they, you know, these these programs, um, you know, lawmakers will tell you on both sides of the aisle, they sound like no brainers, you know, it, why aren't we already doing that? But um, the the political reality oftentimes at the Capitol is is very different. And that's what I'm hoping, you know, through through some of these stories I'm working on to kind of show for people and, you know, what kind of influences, um, you know, can can snag, you know, bills as critical as wildfire prevention. Mm. Abortion was one issue that really toward the end of this legislative session just jumped right to the forefront with the leaking of the Supreme Court opinion and ultimately the overturning of of Roe v. Wade. And Colorado was one of the states that has abortion, vote essentially has abortion protected as a right in the state and became a part of this big national discourse. Can you talk a bit about the reporting that you did, have done in the last few months over both the reaction to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and and just your sense of kind of what that means for the reality of life in terms of abortion um, in Colorado. Yeah, the the state is definitely still bracing for um, you know the the impact of the decision. You know, we we've seen other states um, since the Supreme Court's decision. You know, moving to to put restrictions in place. Um, we were already seeing you know more people traveling here from places like Texas. Um, you know, so that over the next year i think we'll we'll find out more you know what what is the impact on on people um you know living here i i know you know those discussions have already kind of gone into um uh, higher gear uh here at the capitol you know there are democrats actively working on bills that you know they say will um you know increase access increase capacity things like that um but I will say, you know, in the immediate, you know, aftermath, you you could tell um, you were covering something very impactful. I mean, almost um, instantly, within you know an hour or two, there were crowds forming at the the steps of the Capitol, and we, um, you know, we tend to see that on some some really big issues. And um, you know, the the folks I talked to, you know, who were the first to to grab you know bullhorn or signs um, to protest the decision, you know, there was a lot of um, fear and uncertainty, um, you know, but on the other hand, there are Republicans in the state who are, um, you know, still celebrating, still feel like, um, you know, that's a long overdue decision. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the human impact, um, we do have a major election coming up that, um, you know, we have a brand new congressional district that, you know, you see forecasts about who's going to win, you know, the the house or have the you know the most seats and um you know this district here right here in colorado um you know could could determine that and i expect you know as this election season ramps up here over the next couple months that abortion will be um, a big issue as, as we've seen it become you know in some other primaries and and races around the country hmm. we have a caller so we're going to bring them up Hey there, you're live on KOTO. Hey, oh, uh, Mr. Franz can't hear me on the Zoom. Mr. Franz cannot hear you on the Zoom, but I'll relay the message. Sure. Okay, I'll keep it short. Um, my question is about independent voters. Uh, the Washington Post had a story about uh, OJ. I forget his first name. He's the Republican challenger to um, uh, Michael Bennett. 
and uh, the speculation of that Washington Post article was that it was independent voters that selected that moderate Republican to challenge uh, Michael Bennett. I will relay the message. Thank you. Generally about independent voters and specifically uh, that race. Thank you. Um, Scott, the question was about the upcoming Senate race, actually, and and Michael Bennett's opponent, um, Joe O'Day. Um, And the insinuation, the the caller had read a Washington Post article that had said independent voters were essentially the ones that really kind of, you know, crowned O'Day essentially in that in that primary. And and now it's him against Bennett. Um, And I think he was just the caller was wondering really on your general reflections on the impact independent voters could have in the upcoming Senate race this November. Well, yeah, definitely. I think they'll they'll have a huge impact. I think Colorado is a state where, um, you know, unaffiliated voters you know, do have a deciding factor. Um, you know, it, I guess it depends on you know more regional races. It, it depends on you know the county or district they live in. But a statewide race, um, you know, for U.S. Senate, I think definitely. I think um, you know the each election cycle, we definitely try and get the pulse of you know the unaffiliated voters because those are the ones that. Um, yeah, tend to, um, you know, that <laughs> political groups certainly are targeting and, um, you know, I, I know that, you know, the, the ads and everything are already flowing in and, um, yeah, in a state like Colorado that I, I think, you know, more so than many others, the, the role of the independent voter will be, be huge. Mm. I have to ask before we, we jump, um, off of the the abortion topic, it actually hadn't occurred to me that it's interesting to think about that this all really happened at the end of the legislative session. And so can you talk a bit about what you're hearing in terms of what legislators might be proposing this coming session for legislation at the state level in response to that repeal of federal abortion protections? Right. That's a great question. I, I think some of the most specific proposals I've heard um, from Democrats right now are, are focused on things like promoting um medicinal abortions getting you know prescriptions um and they see that as a way um to perhaps alleviate capacity you know at clinics that they can um you know do more um you know through that model um there was even trips some legislators took to mexico which um you know has seen you know the their alliance and and use of medicinal medicinal abortions um you know rise pretty pretty dramatically. Um, so, you know, I expect to see perhaps some some legislation on that. Um, other states like California, you know, which like Colorado has has passed um, protections for abortions, you know, they um, have also moved to dedicate some funding to, to promote um, and help people travel to their state. Um, lawmakers here tell me that they're very limited because of our state constitution, which which prohibits the use of um, you know state state funds for for something like that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I, I think the biggest proposal that is still looming is a um, an amendment to the state constitution. Um, you know that Democrats passed the uh, Reproductive Health Equity Act. Um, you know which aims to really guarantee in, in state law. Um, the right to an abortion, but um, you know that you know if the control of the governor's mansion changes, if control of the legislature changes, that you know that's something that could be undone by um, political change. Uh, whereas a you know change to the state constitution takes the will of voters, and and we've seen um, at least in um, several of the most recent elections that the voters here um, you know are opposed to adding restrictions to abortion. They, they, they seem very supportive overall as a state um, of the system we have now. Mm. Haven't even brought up the governor's race that's coming up this November. There's just so much to talk about that we won't get to all of it. Um, and I don't even know if I'll, I'll open that right now because if I've learned anything in politics, it's not to try and predict anything more than, I don't know, a week in advance, maybe, and November's a ways away. Um, but while we have you, one other topic I did want to touch on that I think is important to our listeners is housing. And can you just talk about how folks at the Capitol are thinking about housing, which we know is not just an issue in Telluride, it's an issue in mountain towns and areas across the state. So what are developments this legislative session, um, major ones around housing? Yeah, I think a lot of it this session was focused on funding for projects. The state government 
um, you know, pitched itself as a first time, um, you know, uh, well, not a first time, but a more active partner uh, in, you know, developing affordable housing. There, there's a lot of debate still going on, you know, on what income levels to target. You know, we heard from, um, you know, elected officials on the West Slope about, you know, how a certain income level there um, is very different from places along the Front Range, you know, especially in mountain resort communities, um, you know, that, that you live in. It's, it's, you know, housing is a very different situation um the cost of living is very different so there will be um you know an infusion of several million dollars toward um you know trying to to generate some of these projects you know for example you know one that comes up a lot uh, at the capitol is this um, proposal near steamboat springs um you know lots of units but it's being built on you know former ranch land with it doesn't have the infrastructure um in place um elect electric sewer things like that so um you know the state says well these new grant programs will help um you know on the other hand i i've been watching with interest kind of the the local governments taking things into their own hands you know there's the ongoing battles between um you know the the hospitality industry people renting their homes um, for short-term rentals and you know the the locals who are getting um, priced out and um, oftentimes having their housing taken away from under them, you know, sometimes because of um, you know owners that um, that do convert them. So it is a you know a, a debate with a lot of emotion on on both sides and a lot at stake. Um, and I, I think again, this is something that you know lawmakers will continue to to address. Um, but how far this funding from the state goes is, you know, is another question. The governor told me, um, you know, that this would create hundreds and thousands of, of units over the next couple of years. Um, but, you know, we'll we'll have to see just just how how widespread that impact is. Mm. Well, our region has its own experience with that. Our Telluride in our local county recently got some state funding to buy a, a pretty large parcel of land nearby. And, and there's no plans yet. But, you know, I think there's a lot of talk of developing, you know, affordable housing in that area. And, and as you've said, it's an issue that's developed a lot of passion in our region. So uh, I think the things you're talking about are, are very much trickling down to the lives of the people over here in Telluride and, and San Miguel County. Um, but as we have just a few minutes left with you, Scott Franz, I have to say that we are, we are happy, we are sad, it's bittersweet. You are, you're moving on from your role in capital coverage in your role providing us updates from from the state house and you're moving on to be an investigative reporter um with KUNC I have to say congrats and I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners just what you're hoping to do with this this new role and this new beat thanks yeah I I'm super excited and and you're right it is it is bittersweet <laughs> I uh I was in the capitol building yesterday interviewing um you know lawmakers and it I, I don't think it's quite hit me yet that you know I um you know I I am taking on a new role. I'm, um, we're very excited to to welcome Lucas Brady Woods from um, KSJD and Cortez to to take um, take the keys to the Capitol, as I say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, my my true passion in in journalism, you know, both here um, as the Capitol reporter and at my previous role uh, at a newspaper in Steamboat, um, you know, was watchdog journalism. I I love holding. Um, people in power to account. I love, um, you know, getting um, tips from people about, you know, things that perhaps, you know, need some some light and attention. Um, and I'm super excited to, you know, to take the skills I've learned um, covering politics, covering people in power and, um, you know, getting to, to dive deeper into an investigative role. I, investigations take a lot of time. They take a lot of effort. Um, you know, it's something that's that I've been able to do as capital reporter. Um, but during you know the months of the legislative session, <laughs> things are happening so fast. Like you know, covering the the here and now takes priority. Um, but I do you know plan to 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 keep my focus. Um, you know, especially with some of my bigger investigations on um, state government, on you know government in general, because it's something I'm you know most experienced covering and. 
um, you know, also the where the stakes are highest and and the impact can be can be great. Well, we might be hearing your voice a little bit less over the Kodo airwaves, but Scott, I am I'm so excited for you and to hear some of the pieces you make and the journalism you generate in this new role. And um, I just have to say, it's it's been a delight having your stories over our airwaves, and um, equally a delight having you as a guest on this hour, which which is now over. So Scott Franz, thank you so much. You're welcome, Matt. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. This is KOTO Telluride. I'm Matt Hoish. Stay tuned. Rock and Rob's going to be on in just a sec. We're going to have more news tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday night. Thanks for listening to Off the Record. Opinions expressed on this show are those of our guests. Join us again next week for another installment. And in the meantime, drop us a line at news at koto.org with feedback and ideas. Oh,